Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. I'm your host, David Collis. I want to shout out to my audience. Thank you for listening. You're the lifeblood of my show. Please click the Nightlight Blog Talk Radio follow button and click the subscribe button on my Nightlight YouTube channel. That helps you know you're listening, plus you'll get all the updates. My guest tonight is Reverend Sean Whittington. He's an ordained minister, a deliverance minister, lecturer, and teacher. He co-founded Ghost Be Gone, is the host of the Vegas Supernatural Radio Show and is the author of God, Ghost, and the Paranormal Ministry, a supernatural and spiritual autobiography. One would think the ancient sacrament of exorcism is unnecessary or obsolete. After all, this is the 21st century. Think again. It's just important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Sean has many stories to tell from the front lines. Welcome to Nightlight, Sean. David Collis, good evening, sir. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that I feel blessed and honored that you have invited me to be on your wonderful show tonight, and uh, I want to congratulate you on your show. You're, uh, it's a new show, but I hear great things, and I know you're going to do very well, and you're on the prayer list, and I pray that you have many, many years of success with your, with your new adventure. Hey, well, thank you very much. I appreciate all of that, and I do look forward to all the different guests that I get to meet and all the people that I get to talk to and, uh, you know, and all the fascinating stories that people have to tell because there's plenty out there, and you're one of them. So thank you for uh, accepting my offer. I There's no place I'd rather be tonight. Well, nobody nobody else invited me on their show tonight, but even had they done that, I would say thank you, but no thanks. I'm on Nightlight tonight. I wouldn't miss that for the world. Fantastic. Hey, so things are like kind of busy out there in Las Vegas for you. So what's going on on the uh, kind of the spiritual front? The spiritual front. How quick do you plan to jump into topics that may be a little 
darker than than you than you might be used to. And the reason why I ask oh, that, if we're going to, if we have to go down that, we have to go down that road. I'm excited well, if we're about gonna, it. If we're going to first, do you want to do a little bio? Well, what I wanted to do, with your permission, sir, and there's no wrong answer here to your show, but if we are going to rather quickly get into some of the darker stuff, I'm going to ask that I be able to do a quick prayer of protection over you, your audience, and myself uh, before we get going into those types of stories. Well, why don't you go ahead and do a blessing and do the prayer that you'd like, and then, you know, instead of getting into maybe what's going on, we can talk a little bit about your journey and how you got to the place where you are now. You want to do it that way? Perfect. Perfect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in his name and by the power of his cross and blood, I ask Jesus to bind any evil spirits, forces, and powers of the earth, air, fire, or water of the netherworld and the satanic forces of nature. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by his authority, I ask Jesus Christ to break any curses, hexes, or spells and send them back to where they came from, if it be his will. I beseech thee, Lord Jesus, to protect us by pouring thy precious blood on us, which thou hast shed for us. And I ask thee, to command that any departing spirits leave quietly without disturbance and go straight to thy cross to dispose of as thou seest fit. I ask thee to bind any demonic interaction, interplay, or communications. I place everyone at nightlight with David Collis, myself, my family, and all those who have tuned in under the protection of the blood of Jesus Christ, which he said shed for us. Amen. Well, thank you for that, Sean. So I understand, I understand that you feel like you were born to do that, this work. So you want to talk a little bit about that? I'll try to give you, I know we don't have all night, so I will try to give you a as thorough but abridged version of it as I can. And I have to include yeah. um, a little bit of my father's background. He was a 25-year plus retired Master Chief Radio Man from the United States Navy. He uh, served in World War II in Korea, a Purple Heart recipient, finished his career in naval intelligence, so he was an extremely credible individual. And he loved to tell the story about the time that he was saved by his guardian angel uh, during a battle out at sea with the Japanese. He would, just as they were bombing Pearl Harbor, he was stationed in the Philippines, and they knew that the Philippines was the next target. So all naval personnel were ordered to evacuate the island. But you can only get aboard a ship if you could walk. There were many wounded uh, people that they had to leave behind. So he jumped on his ship, and it did happen. Several hours out at sea, they did encounter the enemy. They came under attack, and his ship was sunk. And I want to say sometime probably mid-afternoon that day, he went into the water. He was one of the last people to leave the ship because he was sending out uh, the SOS signal and the coordinates to where they were at. But he got into the water hanging onto a piece of wood, a gangplank, if you will. And he 
floated up and down in the water the rest of that day and the whole night long. And by morning time, he was deathly ill because he was bobbing up and down in the water and there was so much gasoline, oil, God knows what else floating around that water. He couldn't help but ingest a little bit of it here and there. So he was violently ill and very weak. And the sad thing about this story is that no one was coming for them, and they didn't know that. All naval personnel in the area were ordered not to go back for survivors because there was too much enemy infestation in the area. But the great thing about it was there was a Captain Abernathy, and I, God, you know, forgive me for not remembering the name of his ship, but he disregarded orders, and he went back for survivors. And my dad recalled seeing the sun come up over the horizon, but there was a thick fog over the water, and they barely could see. And they heard a ship coming, and they actually thought it was the enemy. As the ship got upon them, the fog cleared, and he noticed it was a naval vessel, and it was just a mad dash. All the sailors that were still swimming in the water, a mad dash to try and get to this boat. And the boat was throwing all sorts of rope ladders and life preservers and single ropes and so forth over the edge for sailors to grab a hold onto and try to get on board ship. And my dad was just so weak, he couldn't get to the ship. He was paddling and paddling and paddling. He made some, some got a little bit closer to it, but not close enough. And he heard the announcement come over the um, speakers that prepare to get underway. And he heard the ship turn the engines over, and he could hear the propellers start to engage. And he decided, well, they're going to uh, drag me back dead, but they're not going to leave me here. And he found a piece of rope lying in the water. He wrapped it all around him, his upper chest, in between his legs, around his armpits, wherever he could wrap this rope around. And he actually remembered feeling the sensation of starting to be pulled through the water and he heard a deep voice yell, there's one more over the side. He recalls looking up and seeing a very large muscular sailor jump over the side of the ship and while hanging on to the ship with one arm, reach down into the water, grab him by the scruff of his neck and toss him up onto the deck of the ship. And where he hit, he basically passed out for probably 48 hours or so and he was woke up under this little makeshift tent on the deck, and when he was well enough to get to his feet, he scoured that ship, every deck, front to back, side to side, everywhere, trying to find this sailor so that he could thank him for saving his life. Well, not only did he not find this sailor, but no one knew of any sailor that fit that description on the ship, and no one even actually saw the incident. It was like one second my father wasn't there, the next second he was on the deck of the ship. So my father, 110% over the top, believed his whole life that his guardian angel had saved his life. Now, fast forward many years, he's uh, stationed in Brazil, meets, falls in love with, and marries my mother. She was Brazilian. She's a very highly, highly spiritual and devoutly Catholic woman from a town called Cruz de Almas in the north of Bahia in Brazil. And there's no veil there between the dead and the living. They walk amongst each other as though it's commonplace. So she's devoutly Catholic but raised very spiritual. They move back to the States. They have my two older sisters. And when my sisters were very young, my father went back out to sea on a mission. And my mother gets a phone call one night. 
and it's the base doctor, and they had to rush my father back to the base because he had contracted uh, cephalitis and spinal meningitis, among some other complications that kicked in because of the diseases. And someone out there listening can correct me if I'm wrong. They may have a cure for it now, but I know back then they didn't, and it was basically a death sentence. So they told my mother, if you want to see your husband alive again, you need to come and look, see him now in the hospital. He's in a coma, in and out of a coma, but we have to strap him to his bed because when he's not in the coma, he's extremely violent and out of his mind. So she found, somehow found somebody to watch my sisters and got in a cab headed to the base hospital, stopped at the church, and went in. And for lack of a better uh, description, she basically made him, tried to make a deal with God. I don't, you know, God bless her. I don't condone that, but she asked, begged, she was threw herself on the mercy of the altar and begged for God to, to spare my father's life and told him that if he did that for her, the rest of her life until she was too old and unable to do it. Whenever she went to church, she would do it on her hands and knees, and she would have another child because at that time there were no plans for any other children. The birth of my second oldest sister was very hard on my sister and my mom, and they suspected if she tried to have another child, the, the baby wouldn't survive and my mother might not survive either, so there was no plans. Well, she got to the hospital my dad was in a coma, tied to a hospital bed. She fell asleep at his bedside. She woke up in the morning. My dad was sitting up totally normal, just staring at her and said, Edith, what, do you, what am I doing strapped into this bed here? She screams. The doctors and the nurses come in. They ran every test imaginable and couldn't find any trace of any of the diseases left in his body. And so my mother kept her bargain, kept her part of the bargain. She, from that point on, whenever she went to church, she did it on her hands and knees, and she did have another child. Ta-da! Yours truly. And, yeah, and she told me at a very early age that I was going to do something great for God one day. She didn't elaborate on what that was, but she did tell me that often, and um, now I'm realizing what that is, and and, uh, that journey is is, uh, coming coming to fruition. It's interesting when you, you think about the nature of these kind of contracts that we enter in with God, that was a, that, that wasn't that far removed from the way in which um, the pagans believed. they were always making contracts with God. And so here we are seeing another type of person like your mom making a, a contract and then she's living up to her bargain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so the, from that, you felt like you had been destined to be an exorcist. Is that correct? No, that came, funny enough, that only happened about 15 years ago. I saw okay. spirit when I was very young. And my mother used to tell me, you're going to see spirit all your life. I don't know how she knew that. My mother was very sensitive to spirit as my sisters and as I suspect my younger brother is too, but he's in a little bit of denial with that. It, that kind of stuff freaks him out a little bit. But um, I saw spirit when I was very young, and it scared the bejesus out of me. It, I didn't know how to handle it. And the only one I could confide in was my mother. She told me not to fear spirit, that they were just people that didn't have a body any longer, and they wouldn't hurt me, and they appeared to me. There had to be a reason for me to ask them what it was that they wanted of me. 
And if it was something that I could give them in return, a favor or take a message or something, great. But if I couldn't help them with what their request was, to tell them that I couldn't help them and then just to ask them to be gone, to please leave you alone and not scare you or bother you any longer. But the flip side of that coin, and I don't know if she was totally honest with me at the time, when I was really little, I was, you know, off the charts, bouncing off the walls all the time, and she would try to get me to take afternoon naps when I wasn't in school so I wouldn't be up all night. And she would say, listen, now, the ones that are coming for you, I don't want them to get you while we're napping. So you grab a hold of my hair, and I'll grab a good hold of your leg, and that's how we'll sleep so that you won't get taken from me. And I used to, that freaked me out a little bit too because I didn't really know what she was referring to. I knew that it had something to do with the spirit that I was seeing, but perhaps she was referring to a darker, more malevolent kind of spirit that she didn't want to freak me out even more by being honest with me about that at that age. But I do remember uh, her telling me that. But, you know, I worked my first case when I was about 10 years old. My sisters lived in a haunted home that they were renting when they were in college, and I went to spend the night there, had an up-close encounter with the spirit that was in their home, ultimately helping that spirit cross over, and the rest was history. I started ghost busting, and um, I never really ran into the mother load of all haunts or anything or malevolent or dark until my wife and I worked this one case and something followed us home and took residence up here in the house for about eight weeks and turned our life into a living hell. And it was at that point that I reached out into the paranormal community and got introduced to my then mentor who is now retired. But she took me under her wing and by the hand helped walk me through fighting this thing that was in the home to get it out of here. And during that battle, she recognized in me something that I didn't recognize in myself. And she said that, you know, you were made to do this. When she said that to me, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me, and I knew exactly what she meant. And I knew that that was what my mother meant. And that she says, you need to finish this training, finish training with me and get ordained. And you need, this is what your calling is. And it was just, I had never been had told by anybody in my life anything that felt more right than those exact words that she said to me. And then I went ahead and finished my training. And like gangbusters, it was flip side of the coin. From that point up to that point, it was just basically ghost, ghosts that I dealt with and hauntings and things of that nature. Now all of a sudden, every single case that came across my desk were very dark, malevolent type cases. And it was just one thing after another, just let me know. And everybody was right that this uh, this is what, you know, I was created to do. So when you were smaller, uh, when you were little, and you were afraid of the spirits, were you seeing a, a, a spirit that was like all the time, the same one all the time? Is that like Different ones, and it wasn't every day, but enough to freak me out, you know, maybe twice yeah. a month. And they would be different okay. ones. And sometimes, and have, actually, I would be talking to them like they were a real person, as if it was a neighbor or a friend of the family, until I realized they're talking to me, but their mouth isn't moving, and I'm hearing them in my mind. And I'm, I feel like I'm in a meat locker, 
and now this no one else around can see this person I'm talking to, but everybody's staring at me like I'm a weirdo because they see me talking to something that they can't see. It was a it was a it was an eye opener. It was it was very uh, I couldn't at that age I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I didn't want to come out and be honest with people about that because I just knew, and I still believe to this day, had I done that, my life would have been much different. I wouldn't have had the, wouldn't have had the friends that I met and the life that I had yeah. growing up because I I don't think I would have had any friends. They would have. Most of my friends that know me and love me think I'm crazy anyway, but that would have just been, uh, I think, would have my life would have been much different if I had come out with that at that age. I regret you know, having done that. I advise, I advise people all the time, don't do that. Be honest. Find some people that are close to you, an inner circle. Be honest with them about your gift. So parts of me regret it, but at the same time, I do know that had I, had I come out, uh, my life would have been very, very different. I just think that our civilization and our society just really doesn't know how to embrace that. Whereas your mom, being Brazilian, there's all kinds of uh, spirits that they are connected to. So it wouldn't be that far removed to have a lot of friends down in South America or even Mexico or Central America um, with these types of experiences, I think it's much more common than it is here. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you want to get diagnosed as being schizophrenic if you're having conversations <laughs> with something that no one sees. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It happens yeah, to me to this to, day. I... Did you ever get to see the movie Harvey? You know, where oh Jimmy gosh. Stewart has the, the big rabbit, <laughs> the big rabbit. I saw that when I was young. I remember it being a wonderful movie, but, oh, my gosh, I can't remember much of it because it has been that long. But, yeah, that's a wonderful movie. It's it's really beautiful. You know, he's having – he has a friend that he's always talking to and no one else sees him. So you have, like you – a, you have a natural gift of discernment and understanding. Is that, would that be accurate? Yes, I – that would be accurate. And uh, now it has later in life – now that I've totally, you know, been hit by the bolt of lightning of truth as to what I'm here to do, it seems to have flipped the switch to high. Um, and now the yeah, gift of discernment yeah. is, is off the charts. It's like they're, they're everywhere. It's a, it's a bit annoying. And I can see and hear demons, which is also very scary. And uh, people say, well, you do this for a living. It scares you? Absolutely. I wake up every day and yeah. pray that I don't work another demonic case or ever have to take authority over another exorcism or have to deal with that. It's very – I'm just human. I don't have any magical powers. I've been lucky enough to have uh, the gift of discernment to be able to allow myself to be used as a vessel for the Holy Spirit to come through and deal with these things on these cases but uh, it's not me. I don't have any magical powers. But it's it's scary. It's it can be, it's very very scary. Yes, I, I have had my own experiences, and it can be harrowing. Yeah, I mean, it's, on many levels, on an emotional level, on a physical level. Yeah, I mean, I have been attacked, so I know what it's like. Yeah, and I, and that's nothing probably compared to what you've gone through. So. Um, you know, before we kind of really kind of dive into this, there's a couple of questions I have. One is, are you able, are you a little bit like Dr. Doolittle? Do, you, do the animals talk to you? <laughs> um, 
you know what? You're going to get me to admit something for the very first time. On oh, it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I bet you they do. They come up and they go, Sean, how come they're telling it, me? You know, how come they're telling me that I got to eat out of this bowl? I'd rather eat something else. You know. I don't talk about it much at work because everybody already. I freak everybody out at work anyhow because they know what I do when I'm not at work. And um, and I don't yeah. know if your audience knows I'm a veterinary technician by trade. During the, I'm a I'm an exorcist 24/7, and a teacher and a lecturer and and a radio show host and all that. But my my day trade is in the animal care industry, and I've been at this in that field for 20 years. My wife's the office manager at the same animal hospital that I work at. And so I don't really talk much about it at work because I already freak people out there. And my wife will tell you, <laughs> 24-7 here at the house, I interpret what my dogs are thinking to my wife as though they're having a discussion with us. And I think sometimes she finds it amusing. Sometimes I think she finds it just extremely annoying. Yeah, I, you know, I do sense what they're thinking. And I just, if it hits me, I repeat it. And sometimes I'll just look at them and see, well, let me test it here and see if they can hear what I'm thinking. Because I don't speak dog, but let me just look at their eyes, think of what I'm saying to them and see what they do. And lo and behold, if they won't react to the things I'm saying, like go get your bone or lay down, stop barking. you know, one of my favorite ones, well, most of the time I have to yell this one out, but sometimes I go to the window and think, stop barking and get in here, and they'll come in. Um, but I can't prove <laughs> prove it. But, yes, I do get these thoughts, these clear thoughts from them. At least I'm thinking that I'm getting that from them when I'm talking with them and if my wife is playing with them or trying to talk to them or asking them something, I'll answer for them. And uh, like I said, sometimes she finds it amusing and, and funny, but sometimes it can be annoying because I'll just keep doing it all day long because I get it. Sometimes all day long I'm on such the, such of the same wavelength and page with them. And I have two 200-pound yeah. each mastiffs here in the home. They're like big couch potatoes and people anyhow. I call them the circus bears because they're – I never trained them, but they're almost like humans that just walk on all fours. And so uh, I, I I wouldn't say that I'm on Doctor Doolittle's Little's level. I don't want to take that that uh, um, award away from him, but I think on some on some level I I get them. I telepathically get them and get messages from them at times. I had a very weird uh, thing. I never had not gone through life with an animal. I've had an animal, whether it be a cat or a dog, mostly dogs, all my life. And I was always the one in the family that took care of them. But my wife and I were at the Highland Games uh, one year out here at uh, Floyd Lamb Park. Big event, Scottish event. And we were there, and the woman who I didn't know walked up to me and said, I don't know you, and you don't know me, and you're probably going to think I'm crazy. I'm a psychic medium. Well, she, little did she know, I love psychic mediums if they're truly gifted. I didn't say anything. She didn't know who I was. But she said, I've never seen anyone like you before. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you are being followed around by the biggest pack of spirit animals I've ever seen. And you know what? I almost, my day was done. I could have just, I could have died that day and been happy. And I'm forgetting the famous quote by a famous author who said, if 
there's no dogs in heaven, then I want to go where they are at. I think maybe yes. that's Will Rogers. Is that Will Rogers? You know, I would be hard-pressed to guess that on Jeopardy. <laughs> well, that's how I feel. And I was so emotionally moved that day when she said that to me because I feel that. And I know uh, it's been so heartbreaking and so devastating for me, honest to God. Every time I've lost a pet, had to, they either passed or got hurt and passed or you know, I had to have them euthanized because they were, had cancer or something. It's always been so devastating for me that I've always wished and hoped that one day I'm back together with all of them. And that day just was such a, an awakening for me. And I do, um, I do look forward to that one day. And I know my heaven will have all my dogs and, pat, and cats that I've owned in my life there. And that's going to be a great heaven. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I ha- the reason why I was even asking this is that I have a friend and she was over at another friend's house and she got to meet the, the, her friend's cat for the first time. And the cat came up to her and says, will you tell, tell so-and-so to change my bowl? I want like pink bowl. I don't want to eat <laughs> out of the stainless steel. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. But the cat is saying, I'm not going to eat my food out of this bowl anymore. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so she yeah. changed the bowl, and the cat started eating out of the bowl. So it wasn't as finished anymore. But, yeah. Hey, so um, tell me more about this. Okay, I, I'd like to know more about, like, when you started to – I mean, did you just kind of, like, fall into the whole exorcist thing or – did something happen? What triggered all this? And tell me a little bit more about the mentor that uh, you met. Well, I'm going to steal a line that she used to tell me all the time. I would hear her tell people this all the time, and she was asked it all the time, how did you get into this? And she would say, kicking and screaming. Basically, yes. that's the same way it happened for me. Um, yeah. I'm not going to actually mention her name only because I didn't get permission from her ahead of time to do so. Uh, she's yeah. retired now. She has taken authority over hundreds of exorcisms and brought in hundreds of them to um, to closure, positive closure. And she was the real deal. In fact, we met because uh, we were reached out to. We already had a team together. I, she was helping me work that issue I had here at the home out. And she was reached out to by A&E at the time, and they were going to do a show on our team. And it was just going to be... It was called American Exorcist and then her name. And it was going to be about us going around the country dealing with uh, severe demonic cases, Um, a reality paranormal show, if you will. It was all set to go. I mean, everybody signed on the dotted line, contracts are ready and all that, green-lighted. And a couple of the people on the team got violently ill and came down with I, I truly believe under demonic attack and came down with some diseases that people didn't already have, like lupus, things of that nature. And it was very, very scary. And a couple of the main characters got so ill they couldn't do the show, and the show ultimately got canceled before we ever filmed one episode. But wow. how I got into it was I reached out. My wife and I went to work a case. Everybody used to la- uh, joke around and call me Shaun of the Dead because I was the the workplace Ghostbuster. Everybody knew uh, me as that. And we started having some... 
there's a new movie, Shaun of the Dead, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's the one. That's why they yeah. used to make fun of me. And I had a coworker come to me who was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's funny. Yeah, they, you know, I got just used to it after the movie came out. People loved it, started calling me that. I just went with it. But a coworker, she, nicest girl you ever want to meet, just got married, and she said that something was basically raping her in the middle of the night. She couldn't see what this force was. Her husband even witnessed the attacks, and when he would try to intervene, he would come under attack. And then the attacks got more and uh, more and more aggressive to where it would happen on the couch, watching TV, out on her porch, having a cigarette, definitely in the shower when she's taking a shower. So my wife and I went over there to investigate the case, and we really, to be honest with you, I was not ready for what happened. I had not worked a legitimate demonic case before so I really didn't know what to do and my wife and I used a Ouija board on that case to conjure whatever was there and try to communicate with it Mm -hmm. which if you know I'm a firm believer it's a bad idea now I know it's a bad idea during any case but it's definitely a no-no on a demonic case Uh and I think something attached to us and followed us home that very first night because we were driving home, it was about 3 in the morning, and my wife's cell starts ringing, but there's caller ID has no number on it. She goes, well, there's no number on the caller ID. I said, well, maybe it's the client. You better answer it. She answers it. Nobody's there. We don't think nothing of it. We get home, we go to bed, and it started right away with severe night terrors. That following day, I went through a whole series of the most bizarre uh, paranormal events ever in my home and out in my yard, and then that escalated to more night terrors that night, and then we had like a water main break in our wall, and it flooded us out of our master bedroom, and to this day, we still sleep on a California queen mattress in the living room because we we don't, don't use that bedroom anymore because most of the haunting and attacks occurred in that room. Now, long story short, I met my mentor. She helped me go through the motions and fight this thing and get it out of our house, but it came at a very high cost. Shortly after things were calm here, my wife comes home from work, and this was just a matter of days, comes home from work, and she's talking to me like she's drunk. And I asked her, are you having a stroke? I mean, I'm 60 and she's 76. That's not, you know, she's the healthiest person I know, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, no history of cancer in her family. I go, what's, your, what's wrong with you? She said, well, I have a broken tooth and it's scraping on my tongue. My tongue's swollen and all sore. So we go to the dentist, emergency appointment. Dentist looks in her mouth and that's not, uh, a, it's, the broken tooth is there, yes, but that's not what's causing your pain. I'm going to send you to a ear, nose, and throat specialist, ASAP. We go there, and he goes in there, and he diagnoses it as a squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue. But I'm telling you, the insidiousness of this attack came on so fast. It, uh, in a matter of, oh, I want to say two, three weeks, not even that, her whole tongue was one giant tumor, and that spread and became a form of a rare form of throat cancer. That spread and wow. became medullary, yeah, medullary thyroid cancer, which is the rarer 
of the two. There's no cure, and it metastasizes elsewhere, and it did. It metastasized into lymph nodes all through her neck. So she was basically given a death sentence and said she's not going to survive this, and she went through, I want to say, 35 straight treatments of radiation right into her mouth, uh, six weeks of chemo, supposed to get eight, but she almost died after the sixth treatment, so they had her in isolation ward for a while. She couldn't talk or even drink water for months. I was feeding her through a feeding tube here at the house. It was brutal. I had a friend of mine who I grew up with, known him all my life, and he moved back east, and he was actually on his deathbed dying of advanced colon cancer, and he was an atheist. And this was a night when I'm staring at my wife in bed. I'm her home caregiver now. And I know for a fact, I thoroughly believe, I know that I'm going to wake up in the morning and she's going to be dead. I mean, I, I just know it. It's a terrible night. I snuck out and I went to this all-night prayer chapel around the corner that, and I just took a page out of my mother's book and I crawled on my hands and knees from the front door to the altar through myself on the mercy threw myself down on the altar and on the mercy of God, and I begged him to spare her life. And I came home, and here my phone is ringing in the middle of the night, and it's my friend from back east. This is just hours before he died. And I go, why are you calling me? He said, I wanted you to know something. I've been told to give you a message. And I'm going to give me a message because, yes, I just saw God. He wanted me to tell you that um, uh, Sharon's going to survive, and you need to continue fight those responsible, continue on your path. And, you know, God bless him. At least he found God. I know where he's at now, but he was right. She did end up surviving the last um, full-body CT and tests we've done on her. There's no... uh, no signs of any of the cancer anywhere in her body. And um, she's still here working, doing good, put on, put a lot of weight back on. She went from like 140 to like 95 pounds in like two months. Um, it was bad, but, you know, she looks wonderful. She's talking again, eating normal, back to enjoying a relatively normal life. Um, and so there you have it. Uh, I, I needed to, uh, I knew. You know, one thing after another. Anytime some, I ran into something which was a setback, something would happen to let me know there's no setbacks here. You know, we have your back. You're, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. Continue doing what you're doing. We will take care of the rest. And, and they did. And, you know, I worked a case where I had a vision of the Holy Spirit and another exorcism case where I had a vision of Christ. And each time these things happen, they happen at a moment where I'm I'm in extreme doubt. I'm usually up against something and in a situation that um, is pretty rough, and I can sense myself wondering, okay, I'm at the crossroads here. What do I do next? And God's always there, man. He is always there to let me know He's got my back. This is what you do, and He tells me, and I do it, and everything comes out great. And um, and that's how I got into this, because it was my our case here at the home. Now, what's crazy is that, and I do this every day, I wake up every morning and I always pray that I never have to work another demonic case, perform another exorcism, 
anything like that. But and many deliverance ministers and demonologists and the exorcists go through their whole career and never come face to face with the dragon. But right after that case with my wife and right after I got ordained, the next nine in a row, nine cases in a row were all the most extremely dark, malevolent, demonic cases you can imagine. And the, the, the common factor here, the, what was linking them all together was every client knew each other, either professionally or personally, and they all knew me. And it wasn't until, oh my gosh, every, every I could write a book about every single case, but it was not until probably the sixth case that I realized I was the target all along. They were just actually basically had a hook in my nose and they were leading me down this path uh, to make to get me to a point where I was so vulnerable and open to attack that, uh, and that's exactly what happened. On the sixth case, I came under such a violent attack that I left the field for about a year. I was done. I was absolutely done. I was so frightening. Still, the most frightening thing that has ever happened to me or I've ever witnessed or seen in my life. And uh, it was a pastor friend of mine that contacted me one day and said she was working out a very dark case and needed my help. And I told her no. She probably asked me three or four times, and I told her, no, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And finally, one day, she caught me in a good mood, and there must have been some, I felt something pushing me, you know, a, a gentle, supportive push from behind. This is what you need to do. Get out there. And so I said, okay, I'm just coming to observe. And the rest is history. Um, and I was back on the horse again. But wow. It kind of reminds me of the, the movie The Conjuring. Do you ever see that movie? Absolutely. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. So it's not exactly yeah. what yeah, happened. I, I know people that were close to that situation and it wasn't exactly in reality what happened, but those things do happen that were portrayed in that movie. Even if they added some, took some, you know, dramatic and some uh, liberties for entertainment purposes, still a very good movie and everything they portrayed in there could happen can happen. Uh, so, yes, very, yeah, I love the movie. So what were some of the things that you learned uh, from your mentor? And when you, did you actually go and become uh, a trained exorcist or taking classes for that or going through Catholic University? How did that come about? Well, she had a course, which I took from start mm-hmm. to finish. And there was another course that I got through a doctor reverend Bill Jordan at the American Association of Exorcists and Agape Christian University. And I took that course too. And that not only got me ordained, later on uh, I went to some further studies and some further courses and got a lifetime ordination ship with no expiration date on it, a certificate, but that also gave me my spiritual advisor certification and spiritual advisor certified uh, intuitive coach listener. Uh, certification, which was nice too, and I also offer people that service if someone's, you know, got some spiritual issues. And I don't judge whatever religious belief system you have in place or not. If you just need some spiritual advice uh, that's not attached to the paranormal, um, I offer that service too. But mostly, it's uh, it's the paranormal stuff. So is this 
do you kind of consider this more of like a Catholic rite and sacrament of exorcism, or is this more like a, a Protestant delivery ministry? Is there kind of a – is there a distinction for you? I heard somebody that thinks a lot – that's been doing this a lot longer than me once tell someone – he kind of refers to, and I'm going to go ahead and say that he maybe was speaking for me too. He considers himself sort of like the independent Catholic movement. Um, I know that I've seen so many things and done so many things in all the years that I've been involved in investigating the paranormal that if I did some of the, let's say I was a priest and part of a diocese. If I did some of the things that I did now, I probably would be, uh, excommunicated from the church. And that's not a bad thing. It's just I take a, a when-in-Rome approach to things, and I've learned a lot of things out in the field that a priest doesn't learn yes. these things. And yes. I've, had many priests, I've had many priests come to me and say, I've been working this case, and I'm in over my head. Would you take over for me? And I'll show up, and they're outside waiting. They won't even go back in the house. We talk briefly, and then I go in. It's and that's saying nothing derogatory about them. I, I'm the weird guy at church that see that people see getting on his hands and knees and usually kissing the priest on his foot at mass on Sunday, and you know, um, people that know what that means know what that means, and that's okay. Everybody else, that's okay too if they don't. But um, I would consider myself. I'm baptized Catholic. I was also confirmed many years later in the Catholic religion. So I tell people I'm Catholic, but I was ordained through a Christian university, and many of the teachings that my mentor's course had had a little bit of quite a few different uh, approaches to this, different religious belief systems kind of in there, uh, uh, making it – your your approach can be different because not every case is the same. And you need to be able to right. kind of adjust, you know. Feel your way through uh, it. Yeah. You have to feel so, your way. I, would I don't know if that answers. Absolutely. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> okay, I want to. I want to ask another kind of uh, general question, and this is the, you know, some of the movies that I will watch. Um, when it comes to demonology and exorcism is that there is a, a need to be able to assess the victim, the person that's being under attack and make a diagnosis on whether or not this is a, a psychological issue with multiple um, personality disorder or whether or not it's a real possession. So do you, are you able to make that determination or is that even part of the issue? Well, when we get – we usually it happens like this. I get a phone call, sometimes a text, yeah, can, go, sometimes can, it's a call. Walk me through this whole process. Yeah, walk me through the process. I first talk to the client. I get as much information. It's, it's an initial phone interview. Then I talk to my wife about what I talked about with the client. Then we decide – we both use – she's a, a certified Stephen minister through the Lutheran faith. So we put our heads together and we try to, you know, we pray for discernment on what the next move should be. And if the next move is to send them an intake form, we send them an intake form. And I require that everybody in the household sit down. It takes probably three, three and a half hours. 
But I require that everybody in the household sit down as a family unit because that's when they're strongest and fill out this form together as a family. And the sad thing is probably 95% of the clients I lose at that point because they don't want to take the time to do that, and that's okay. I've learned I, – I didn't – I didn't know this when I first started doing this, and I allowed my heart to get broken a lot. I don't allow my heart to get broken anymore. I do cut loose far more cases than I care to admit to, but I learned the hard way, and my mentors, the people that I talk with now through my problems, tell me that, you know, if they're not going to allow you to do what you need them to do to help you help them, you're just going to make things worse. And as hard as it is to have to cut them loose, you've got to do it. It's like the drowning man. You know, you jump in there and try and save him. And if he doesn't relax and let you put whatever hold on him you need to put on him to swim back to shore, and he just keeps flailing and grabbing a hold of your head and pushing you under the water, you're just yep. both going to end up drowning. Yep. And my I very presence, they're already, just the fact that they picked up the phone and called me, if, there's the, if the demonic is there present in their home, they're provoked. I don't do religious provocation even when I'm on the, on the sites because my presence is already provocation enough, and they're already provoked that they called me, and I already know if it's a legitimate case or not because usually before the phone call comes, I start getting what I call paranormal drive-bys here at the house. Things start happening here what at the that house. Mean? Tell well, me about means... that. <laughs> I'll tell you some great ones, and it's usually the same ones over and over again. I'll be awakened in the middle of the night, but what sounds like I'm going to be over-the-top dramatic here because it really sounds like this. It sounds like a pterodactyl has landed on my roof and runs cloven foot from one end of the house to the other and back, and you can still hear the wings flapping, and then it always crashes through my roof into my attic. Well, you got to meet these things right at that moment. You don't just say, well, maybe it'll go away. So I run into the room. I've got my holy water and my um, uh, frankincense burning, and I pop the latch into my attic and go up in there, and there's never anything up there. There's no hole in the attic. I bless the area anyway. And then from that on for a few days, it'll sound like, and I do have a couple of outdoor cats. So what's concerning is it sounds like a feral cat in my backyard being ripped apart by wild dogs. And I always go out there, and I can sometimes look into the bushes and it, hear it. And it sounds like it's happening right there in front of me. You shine a flashlight in there, and there's nothing. But it sounds like a cat just being ripped to shreds by wild dogs. And then it can be a variety of other things. Um, like when my wife was going through her attacks, we had a bee infestation in the garage, which left as quickly as it came. Uh, I went out to do some gardening, and I had these blackbirds that I'd never seen before in southern Nevada out there attacking me so so violently and aggressively that I had to get in my car and wait till they went away before I could go in the house. Things things like that. They can manipulate the environment, and uh, yes. You know, I can I can go to reach for a doorknob. Like, it's usually me coming from outside back in. I grab my doorknob, and it feels like something bit my right hand. Nothing will be there at first, and I'll walk into the house, lay my hand up on the table, and my wife and I will stare at it for a few minutes. Sure enough, you'll see the three scratch marks on the outer right side of my hand. 
And uh, those types of things start happening. You know, uh, the three knocks on the door, very common. Usually when one of us are standing right there, we peek out the window, and I have a big sign on my door to test the theory. Our dogs are big enough to crash through our front door. They're so protective over the house that the mailman won't even come here any longer. We have to get a P.O. box. And he wrote us a letter. And the dogs were hitting the door so hard, they were, there was a crack developing in the middle. So I had to nail two-by-fours up from the top of the door all the way to the bottom on the inside. And there's a sign on the outside that says, no soliciting, do not knock. Because if you knock on the door, oh, my gosh. So we still get the knocks. You have a, Oddly you have enough. A, wait, hold on a second. Do you have a slot in the door where the mailman puts the, the mail? No, it's outside. It's a little mailbox that hangs okay. on the wall, which we had to take the lid off it because they could even hear the, the little squeak of the metal lid going up when the mailman put the mail in. Dogs would go balloon. Yeah. We had to undo yeah. the, the we had to undo the, the doorbell. So now the dogs don't hear that three knock, just my wife and I. And usually one of us are right by the door and we peek out there. We already know no one's going to be there because we have the sign. But there's never anybody that we can see on the other side of that door. But when I start seeing and experiencing that stuff, I know within 24, 48 hours, I'm going to get a phone call. And I already know that call is going to be a legitimate case. But I do get a lot of calls that come in that I haven't experienced anything. And it's about 50-50. Some usually aren't demonic. Some are. But if the people will sit down and fill out that whole intake form and send it back to us, my wife and I will sit down and we'll read the whole form. Once again, we drop in to, uh, you know, try to get into a little bit of a meditative state and draw on our discernment on what our next move should be. And usually if it, revol- uh, you know, results in us going there physically, then that's very tricky. Now, I have, there's things that I have to do. If there's kids and animals in the home, I usually ask the owners of the home, the adults, to have them taken somewhere else. Because when I show up, sometimes these things lash out at the kids and the animals, and then you're totally distracted, and you're more worried about protecting them than doing the, conducting the business at hand. So I have them so removed... I was going to ask you, do you have like a, a suitcase of tools and relics and items that you take to the site, or is it just a, a couple of items? Do you have I something ready light. to go? Yeah. I travel light. Usually these people are so already hanging on emotionally by their fingernails. They don't need yeah. five black vans with 30 investigators and thousands of dollars of equipment showing up. We usually even take the right. magnets off our car that say, Ghost Be Gone. So not to alert the neighbors that, you know, they're having some issues. And it's just my wife and I. So we're just this very unassuming older couple that look like could be mom and dad or relatives or cousins showing up to visit. And uh, we go in there. And usually it's just, if it's truly demonic, it can, I usually try to go there midday. And it can sun can be at high noon and we drive up, no trees around. And the house looks to me as though I'm seeing it through sunglasses. And that's how I already know that it's infested. When I get to the door... There's a a look to the house. There's an atmosphere to the house. 
And then that to is me what kind is. of keys me in that something's happened. To me, there is, yes. And to my wife, too. She can walk into a place and say, you know, if you want to stick around because we're already here, fine, but nothing's going to happen tonight. I can just feel it. She tells me it's like walking around in soup. If it's if if something if, if we're going to be confronted by something, or we need to stay there and do what we came to do, it's like walking around in soup. The the atmosphere. But if it's all, I would imagine how she's feeling it. Um, you know, easy to breathe, very light air. You know that type of thing. Uh, whatever else it is that she's feeling, um, I go with that. She's like my human dowsing rod, so I can also tell if if um, we need to be there by some of the things she may or may not tell me. But I don't enter the house down on my knees right there at the at the foot of the door, the front door, and I do say some special prayers before I even enter the home. And then when I enter the home, I do it by my crawling over the threshold on my hands and knees and crawl into the living room that way. Because my biggest weapon is... No, my biggest weapon is humility. And I'm trying to do... The most humble act that I can do, and sometimes when I do that, not only are the I'll be honest with you, not only are the clients a little freaked out, but sometimes you can hear the demons just scatter from the home, like a herd of pigs just scattering and leaving. And all of a sudden, it's like they turned every light on in the house, and you can just take a big deep breath, and you can see everybody's look on their faces like, what just happened? If it does, if that doesn't happen when I cross the threshold, I usually line the whole family up on the couch, and I have them remove their shoes and socks, and I fill a big basin up with holy water, and I wash all their feet like Christ did with his apostles. And wow. that's another another extremely humble, humbling thing you can do, and then usually that does the trick. And after that, we just, like I said, no EVP sessions. We do have a tape recorder running, taking some photos. I may have a camera rolling. We just walk through the house, see what we see, feel what we feel, experience what we may or may not experience. But we don't provoke. and We don't try to conjure. Um, and then we usually, at the very least, that visit ends with a property and house blessing and cleansing. And then it just goes from there, depending on how much more severe the situation may be. If someone's extremely oppressed or, God forbid, there's um, someone's possessed in the home, uh, there's then there's different things to do. Now, my I am very old school, and there's a reason why we have the rites of exorcism, because they work. It's like a play. And I do the traditional Catholic rite of exorcism if I do have to take authority over an exorcism. But it doesn't happen overnight. I have to assemble a team. And then when you assemble a team, these have to be people that you trust your life with. If you don't trust these people with your life, the demons know that. And they just chew you up and spit you out and just demolish your team when you get there. And there's just no way to fight it. You have to know... Divide and conquer. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now you have a team there, and you have your holy water. You've already done some of the rituals that you've done. You've gone in on your hands and knees. You've already done the intake form. You've kind of talked to people, 
and now you have this is going to be a long is this going to be like a long term process or is this going to be a short term process you know what happens at that point i'm hoping short term in in the terms of us having to just end up doing a property and house cleansing and blessing and then let the owners know how they can keep all of the spiritual doors and windows closed and locked and how to keep them that way because if they let anything back in at that point, if they don't do all the things that I've asked them to do or told them they need to do, keep the house clean, these things always linger around. If they if they had their hooks into something one time, they're not too far away after that. And now they're even more mad. If they can be any more mad, I've never I can never adequately put into terms verbally the uh, level of hate they actually feel for us and the anger that comes with them. It's it's like uh, uh, they make uh, you know if Hannibal Lecter was a real person, I don't know he might have been a real character. The movies might have been based on a real guy. I don't know, but if you could take someone like Hannibal Lecter and times him by a billion, then you got a demon. It's just, um, it's what unfathomable. Going on yeah, what's going on there? I mean, how is it that they could get that? How could they be so devoid of actually love or compassion that they are just completely driven by this way of being? We're all going to know have any thoughts on that one day. Okay, I believe so at one point, I believe at one point, they were all given um, free will. And they chose to go, you know, Satan, who was almost like God, his number one, sat on the throne with his creator and then turned on him, tried to, he's a psychopathic murderer, tried to murder him and take over heaven. And he had a legion of followers that were just like him. And I believe that that act of trying to murder God and take over heaven was so So I can't even describe on what level how bad that was and that whole war with St. Michael and his guardian angels that um, when they were cast down here to hell, and I believe earth is hell, we inhabit hell right now. I believe that that that's just just them, you know, uh, and there's a lot of them, you know, an exorcist tells the story once of during an exorcism he had an unclean invading spirit tell him during its manifestation through this person he asked the demon you know there's so many of you how come I can't see you and he said if you could see us we would block out the sun and um, there's a lot of theories that well we don't believe that they can reproduce well Okay, I buy that, but that doesn't mean that we're in any better shape because I don't think they die. They're not human. They don't have a a life and a death span like we do. There's so many answers that we're going to get when we finally go to heaven and find out. But there's so many things we just don't know. But what I've experienced from them is just... Like I said, it was bad enough for me to walk away from the field after being ordained now for a year. And I probably would never have gone back to the field if my friend who was a pastor didn't practically beg me 
to come back. And you know? if I didn't think that the person she needed to help would have gotten the help if I didn't intervene, I probably still wouldn't right. be back into the field. But um, do you ever uh, feel like when you get Excuse me, I was going to say, whenever you get onto a site like this, is it important to know who you're dealing with and what their name is? A lot of people in my field, I'll start with saying this, a lot of people in my field believe that there's only angels and demons. They don't believe in ghosts. Do I believe that many demons in my travels have deceived me? And when I thought they were ghosts, they were really demons? Absolutely, I'm only human. But do I believe in ghosts? Absolutely. I do know ghosts exist. Now, having said that, I believe that these things can manipulate all of that. I, that's why I believe dying in a state of grace is so important. If you're able to get the last rites from a priest, if you're able to, you know, confess and receive communion and accept Christ in your heart at, as you're dying, I believe that's important because I believe it's very easy to just get grabbed. I just saw a movie today and I forgot about the movie and I thought, oh my gosh, that's so probably what it's like. I was watching a movie called Ghost. And do you remember when the bad uh-huh. people in the movie died, those black Entities yes. that come out of like the yes. gutters and drag them off. I believe that's the same way. And then you're not so much you don't become a demon, but you become slaves to the demons, and you're just an old, malevolent human entity now, basically running in that group. But there's a hierarchy uh, throughout the whole, you know, legion. But I do believe that human spirits can be trapped and manipulated and used as slaves by the demonic if you're not if you don't die in a state of grace and go to heaven or go to the light um do all of spirits get trapped no some choose to remain here for some reasons and i believe that in that state you they have to be very careful i believe they have to watch and be careful and know at all times where the exit is and while they're here watching over some loved ones or over their home, they didn't want to let it go, or they're still trying to wrap their head around how fast they died and they weren't ready to die, maybe they don't even know they're dead. Um, I believe they have to be very careful. And the time has to come where they have to make a decision to you know, cut this life loose and move on to where you need to be as a spirit because I believe the longer you stay here, the chances of you beginning caught up into that malevolent world, I, I believe, gets stronger and stronger. Now, guys in my field think there's just demons and there's just angels. And that's okay. I don't judge anybody. You know, I don't try to convert anybody over to Catholicism or Christianity. You know, I respect everybody's beliefs. Um, but uh, I know what I've seen. I know what I've heard. Yes. Could I be a crazy person? Absolutely. That's why I do have a very close friend who's a psychologist and one who's a psychiatrist. And probably pretty much on a monthly basis, I sit down with them and have some nice talks. <laughs> and it's not, Yeah, the last thing you need is an exorcist who's crazy coming to your house. 
And so I want right. to make sure that I'm not one of those guys. Yeah, you don't want all that energy spilling over and, you know, making uh, coming on to you. So let me Absolutely. ask you something. When you when you started and you, you did your first um, exorcism, you know, kind of what did you kind of bring to the table? And now that you've done, say, your last exorcism, what do you bring to the table and what's changed? Well, I realize How now are you that I, I realize now that I didn't totally answer your last question. I believe in traveling light. And so I don't have this big, huge, I don't look like Father Marin and the exorcist that shows up, you know, with the huge, you know, doctor bag full of stuff in there. I do have a bag that I bring and it's got some things in it. Um, What's in it? But it doesn't, <laughs> I do usually Not have holy water. I have a special formula, Mojo Exorcism Strength Holy Water that I, I put together and I bless and then I take to a bishop at a nearby diocese here and have him also lay hands on it and bless it. I bring that. I bring some uh, blessed chrism, which is like an anointing, a blessed anointing oil. I have a, a, a blend of blessed salts in there, usually kosher and sea salt. Uh, blend that's been blessed. Um, a Bible, definitely a Bible, definitely a Bible that either has the rite of exorcism in it, or I bring a separate booklet that's just the rite of exorcism. And uh, usually a wall, cross, crucifix that I can hang on the wall, and one that I can also hold in my hand. And I don't wear the stole that you see many priests wear. I wear a beautiful, one-of-a-kind, custom-made rosary that I got from the Vatican that's been touched, prayed over, and blessed by the Pope himself. It's the most beautiful St. Benedict uh, rosary you've ever seen. Now, some people say, why do you wear a rosary? You're not supposed to wear rosaries. And I tell people all the time, find it in the Bible or, or any place that says you're not allowed to wear a rosary that it's you know, sacrilegious, and I'll stop it. But I've had priests say, no, it's personal choice. I wear mine because I know that the rosary is the most powerful weapon, bar none, against the demonic. I've had a demon tell me that every time I say the Hail Mary, it's like hitting him over the head with a sledgehammer. And what I do wow. is this is a very large uh, rosary. I only wear it during these special situations because – Many times you'll see the priest take half of his stole and lay it across the shoulders of a possessed person when he's right up close to them. Well, I usually not only hand a separate rosary to put in one of the hands of the person, I will sometimes lay the rosary that's hanging around my neck over their lap or over one of their shoulders or may even have them hold on to the crucifix while I'm close up to them saying some prayers. So that's why I wear it because it's, they are beautiful, and I wear them. I, I have hundreds of them here, and many times I wear them as jewelry because I know they're beautiful and they mean a lot to me personally. They're a very, very, very powerful weapon against the demonic, and so that's why I choose to wear a rosary instead of a stole. So that's in there, and um, just travel light. My team's very light. I need a couple of people standing to the left of me. The exorcism rite is like a, a play. 
you know, there's certain prayers and certain prayers have certain responses. So you need people there next to you saying the responses. You also need people that are able to take over for you if you get sick or injured. You need at least one or two people that can take over for you. Now, if I'm dealing with a female client, I like to have female assistance because inevitably sometime during the demon manifesting and having his doing his parlor tricks and having a fit, she's going to end up vomiting, urinating, and defecating all over herself. And I don't want men taking her to the restroom. So I have women take her to the restroom and clean her up. And if it's a man, I have men uh, assistance uh, for a couple of reasons. Sometimes men, um, I've had many more men under extreme oppression and possession get much more violent than the women. Not to say that I haven't had some women get extremely violent. I've only seen a woman actually levitate. I've never seen a man do that. I've seen a woman levitate. But I haven't seen the level of violence come out of the women during these exorcisms as I have some of the men. So the men are there not only as protection, but when they need to take him to the restroom and help clean him up, I want men to do it instead of women. I like one person... If I can find somebody brave enough that wants to stand there and film, no matter what happens, and I mean no matter what happens, if the camera gets picked up and tossed on them, or they get knocked down, or they get violently ill, they have to just keep filming. And they usually have two or three prayer warriors in the room that just sit at the outskirts of the room in the corners and just pray. They can just pray the Bible. They can pray prayers. but they And they can look up if they want but they are just to not get up and do anything but sit there and stay in constant prayer throughout the whole procedure. And um, and hopefully it never gets to that point, and hopefully if it does get to that point, you're not in there for a week. I've known of exorcisms that have taken weeks. I've known exorcisms that have people had to take breaks on and go back, you know, once, twice a week for six months. Oh, my gosh. Um, I have not gone through that. Um, but they can, it can be quick, and it can be a little bit longer, and you have to be uh, ready for that, too. Do some of your clients, like, go into some strange contortions that seem almost impossible to get themselves in? Absolutely. Or is it a, no, huh? Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's absolutely you have to sometimes slap yourself and go, am I really, am I really seeing this or is it a vision? Am I being, am I, is a vision being laid on me to trick me or am I actually seeing this? And sometimes you have to keep the lines of communication open in your team. You have to ask people near you, uh, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And, and if so, what are you seeing? Um, it can be very scary. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, thank God that I've never had if somebody's completely bent over backwards, like if they bent over forwards and touched their toes, but now it's directly backwards, they recover from that. It's it's pretty miraculous. I think that God has something to do with that because I know the Holy Spirit is also present watching this. There's angels there. I know I know there's a choir of angels there watching this go down. And I have a feeling yeah. some of that uh, helps. Because I've seen people do some things where you think this person is about to die, but they, they come out of it. 
And the thing you don't want to do, like I say, it's all parlor tricks. I mean, I've been in homes where every single drawer, every single window, every single door is opening and slamming all at the same time throughout the whole house. And it doesn't sound like a big thing. You've seen it in many movies. But if you ever experience that in real life, it's deafening. It's so loud that you can't even hear the person next to you what they're saying. And it's, it's frightening because you're actually, this isn't a movie. You're not on a movie set. You're experiencing this, and you're like, you know, um, <laughs> sometimes you feel so out of control, like anything that this, these things want to do to you, they're going to do. And you just have to stay strong. You just have to keep praying and keep the faith and keep praying and keep asking for your protection to stay with you and help walk you through this, um, you know, uh, this, this you know, stay, stay steady on the course. Stay with me. Stay behind me. Don't allow me to give in to this fear and buckle to this, this um, intimidation and these tactics. You know, keep me strong. Stay by my side. I mean, you have sometimes you have to break away from the ritual and just talk to God, <laughs> and uh, and just uh, right, especially many, if it's a yeah, brand many, new type of experience that you've never seen before. Absolutely. Do, do you think that there's any relationship with the environment and the person? Now, if you think like maybe you're in Las Vegas and there's a lot of activity, do you think that it has maybe something to do with all the, the nuclear testing that was done there in the 50s? Do you think it's because of all the kind of the corruption that's going on, the human kind of toll, the gambling, the lust, the sin, the um, prostitution, the, the drugs? Do you think that that is you know, opening a portal? Do you think that there's any type of thing that's going on? specifically in Las Vegas that would draw would draw these these types of entities or these demons? I believe so. Uh, so there is so you it, believe that there is a relationship between the environment and the possession or the uh, oppression. Yes, because we know that this was Indian land at one time. So just about every building is sitting on some type of old sacred Indian land. And then throw in all of the extra, a lot of my clients are prostitutes or even just strippers, not really prostitutes, but strippers. Um, and think of all the terrible things that happen here, the gamblers that throw their whole lives away, their job, their wives, their children, and lose it all over just gambling, the drug addiction, the drug abuse, you know, the, uh, the, the legal brothels here. It's all uh, sins against... Uh, what's holy. So if it wasn't here before, it did open portals. And I think there's a reason why they call it Sin City. And I think it just continues to feed that. And right now, I think the whole world is getting a taste of what hell is like. Yeah. And there have yeah. been some major, major portals opened up. And the uh, the network of worldwide exorcists that I you know belong to Many of these guys are in constant prayer 24-7 to try and help, um, you know, imagine a huge uh, spiritual wall of protection around us that many, it's under construction. Many parts of it has been broken down. There's many holes in it. And these guys are in constant prayer to 
spiritually try to do the masonry work to rebuild this wall back up. And it's right now it seems like it's a, it's a never-ending battle that uh, we're even losing. But I know that when, in the end, you and I, guys like us, we know how the story ends. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be a lot of um, life lost between now and the end of the battle. And a lot of people aren't going to make it to heaven. But uh, we try to keep it simple. I mean, there's times I, I always carry a pocket full of prayer cards because sometimes I get to places and there's so much craziness going on, I totally lose my train of thought. In fact, I'm even surprised that our conversation, <laughs> we're still having it. Usually when I do interviews like this, some technical difficulty happens and the phone dies or my earbuds quit working or my computer blows up or something, the power goes out. So um, it's just, we ask that everybody, we try to keep it simple. Right now the big request is three prayers before you go to bed at night and three prayers before you, when you wake up in the morning. It doesn't matter what religious belief system you have or not. You can, my Native American friends, they pray the Our Father and they consider the Our Father to be the Great Father. We're, we think of it as our God. They think of it as the Great Father, so it's okay to say that prayer. When they pray the Hail Mary, we're praying to the, the Virgin Mary, but they think of it as um, Mother Earth in that term, so it's okay for them to say that prayer. And then everybody loves St. Michael, and if you've ever needed St. Michael in your life, and I've seen him, and when if you ever need him in your life, you're glad that he came to your rescue. Everybody loves to pray to St. Michael. So we're asking that everybody say the Our Father, one Our Father, one Hail Mary, and one prayer to St. Michael, short version in English, every night before you go to bed and every morning when you wake up, just to kind of help the cause to push this darkness back and start ripping some holes in this dark veil that's just been put over all of us right now because we are right now experiencing hell on earth. There seems to be an increase in this. Is that what you're sensing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was something that, that when I was reading your book that, that came to you, and I just, I was just flabbergasted. And it was some dark, shadowy figure that spat at you. And you know, whatever it was that they spat at you was almost like a, a toxic poison. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'll talk to you about two things. I'll talk to you about you the three-dimensional black malevolent being that looked like a, you know, a solid three-dimensional person that just stepped out of a vat of tar. The tar is not dripping, and you can't see any, see if it's a male or a female, but it's a solid black three-dimensional figure. And I've also seen what many refer to as the black dogs. A lot of people read stories about them and they don't think they're real. I have seen them. They look like a cross between a, an all-black German shepherd and a hyena. They walk much lower in the back end, and they don't make a sound, but they constantly are defecating this, like, for lack of a better description, uh, tar as diarrhea. And they get it everywhere. And stuff we're now referring to as demonic venom. 
And this was what? Say that again. Demonic what? Venom. Venom. Okay. Like a snake venom. Yes. And my wife and I and a coworker of mine were at a doctor's house, and she was so extremely oppressed that the possession was just the possession could happen at any time. She was also a, a professional masseuse, and during the time, one moment when the invading unclean spirit was actually trying to take her over, she collapsed, and we she had a big, huge massage table right in her living room, and we picked her up, and we laid her on this massage table. Well, she was acting like she was having a seizure, so I had my coworker and my wife hold her down on the table so she wouldn't fall off. We all witnessed what seemed to be like a cloud, a black cloud, just come right out of her chest, and it bolted right for me and blasted through me. Felt like I'd got kicked in the stomach by a horse, lost my breath. I was, I was quite shaken up, but then I look up, and my wife and my friend, the coworker, are looking beyond me with amazement on their faces and horror on their faces. They're looking behind me. So I turn around, and standing there, is that one of these three-dimensional shadow figures. And I believe it's the same shadow figures that people refer to as shadow figures. A lot of them say, well, they were um, malevolent entities that never uh, enjoyed a life as a human being. Okay, I buy that. But it doesn't mean that they're not malevolent or demonic. This thing clearly was demonic, and it appeared as a shadow figure, but a solid three-dimensional one. And it walked down the hallway to the master bedroom where the attacks were known to be extremely violent. And it was known to live in the attic. So I already had the attic door open and a ladder leading up into the attic. So I followed it back there. I had it on the run. I just wanted to follow through with that. So I followed it down into the master bedroom. I heard it go up the ladder. So I climbed up the ladder too, and I wear glasses. That was probably the one thing that saved my eyes at least. Didn't have my mouth open, thank God. But when I got to the top of the ladder and I poked my head in through the, the attic opening, this creature was on all fours at the very top of the ladder facing me, and it spat all of this ooze all over my face. Now, I know people in my field that have actually ingested this stuff before, and it's absolutely deadly. If you ingest some of this stuff, it you're... At the very least, you're going to be violently, violently ill for quite some time, most likely going to end up succumbing to it and passing away. It's deadly. So I now, it's kind of funny that we're going through this pandemic and the COVID thing now. Um, Before that, I started wearing masks on investigations for that reason. And that was before we even had the pandemic. So you got to be very careful with that. And it's portrayed sometimes in the movies as happening during the dream state. You know, the demon's on top of the chest. Some person might be having a night terror or night paralysis, and they wake up, and the demon's above them. And when they scream, they vomit this ooze into their mouth. That can happen. Uh, that's portrayed well. But I've actually seen it the other way, where they, they actually will spit at you, or these dogs will get into bed with you and defecate all over your face. Uh, very nasty. And these dogs bring uh, disease and pestilence with them. I had a case where we don't have some of the bugs that infested this home with don't exist here in southern Nevada. And the presence of these uh, black dogs 
the home com- became completely infested, and even though the um, we had bug people come several times to uh, exterminate the house, none of it worked, and all of their pets died uh, in just a matter of days from the initial sight of the dogs and the initial sight of the infestation. So that was um, got to beware of those. Uh, don't just brush. If you're in this field, you have a calling to get into this field, don't just brush it off if your client tells you that they've seen these black dogs. They could very well have be seeing them, and, you, and you've got to be very, very careful. Tell us about the uh, time when you felt like you just couldn't do this anymore and you were really scared. What happened? Totally didn't see it coming, and I let my guard down. And Two of the cases... A lot of the cases are usually a single mother, and they have children, and the children are under attack. And on this particular case, the girl had um, autism. The odd thing was the case right before her, it was a single mother, and her son had Down syndrome, and he was totally nonverbal, couldn't make a sound. But all of a sudden, he starts screaming in the middle of the night as if something's trying to kill him. And he doesn't want to sleep in his bedroom anymore. But fast forward to the next case that was my attack. It was a young girl who was waking up in the middle of the night. Her mother would find her sitting in the pitch black of the living room, Indian style, staring at the TV, and the TV wouldn't be on. And she would ask her, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm here visiting with Grandma. Grandma's protecting me from the man with no face. Well, the grandmother had died many, many years before the little girl was even born, so she didn't even know, have any idea that she even had a grandmother. So that was a red flag. I go there. There was many other things that had happened to the, the, the mother and uh, family members who had visited there over a period of time. I went there, and I don't advise this, uh, with just one other team member and had him keep uh, the mother company in the living room, she, her sister was there. Right before I headed down the hallway by myself, I took a picture of their double doors that lead out to a balcony. Now, I believe we were on the third floor of an apartment complex, and outside of that is just a little balcony, but there's no way nobody could climb up on that balcony. She didn't have any animals. But the photo, I don't know if I have it in the book. If it's not, it's on one of my uh, Facebook profiles, but you can clearly see two glowing eyes through the blinds on the outside of the window looking at me when I took the photo. And I didn't see that at the time, but I heard something sound like it was running on the outside of the building to the back of the house. And then I heard something in the master bedroom. So I start walking down the hallway and it's all the lights are turned off. I've got a, because I have a special uh, camera that had like a UV light on it and a full spectrum illuminator on it. And so I'm doing some filming and I see what appears to be at the end of the hallway, a black tornado just swirling in the master bedroom doorway. And it's blacker than the black surrounding. And before I even have a chance to react, it's on me. And now I can't scream. I can't move. I can't do anything. I can't breathe. I have the sensation that I'm being bent over backwards and lifted in the air by a giant hand that's just squeezing the life out of me. Uh, I remember a terrible smell unlike anything I'd ever smelt before or since. 
I remember hearing what sounded like thousands and thousands of souls just moaning and crying and screaming. And I don't know how much time I lost. There was some time lost. But I remember distinctively feeling like my life was ending, that it was over. And did I think I was being drugged to hell? Perhaps. I I can't remember what I was actually thinking. Probably more frightened than I'll ever be able to recall until someone does puts me under hypnosis. But I did lose some time, and I remember hearing a voice. The voice said this exact words to me, pray, dummy, pray. And it sounded, my mentor, oddly enough, who's got the gift of psychic abilities and she can remote view, she says sometimes when she's asleep, she can sense when people close to her are in danger, and she thinks it was her saying that to me. I think it was my, I argue with her all the time, I think it was my guardian angel, who I've seen twice in my life, both times saved my life, and I think it was her sounding like my mentor, because at that time, I needed to hear a friendly voice, that perhaps any other voice might not have snapped me out of giving up, let's say. I think I'd given up. And this voice said, pray, dummy, pray. And so I remember starting slowly, but I probably said the Our Father 50 times. Didn't want to, you know, that's the only prayer that I could think of. That's the only prayer I said 50 times. And I woke up on my back on the mass, on the bedroom, on the bed in the master bedroom. And I'm looking up at the ceiling. Don't know, have any idea how I got there. Don't know how much time has passed. And I sit up because I haven't been able to move now for God knows how long. And now I'm ex- excited to just to be able to move. Do I need to do I need to now bolt out of here? But it seems so calm at that moment. But I realized when I sat up that I had urinated and defecated all in my pants. And I hadn't done that since I was a little kid. And so I knew that something so frightening had occurred to me and got down into my very soul and just, I talked to others in my field that say they, they suspect I probably died and had let go when I gave, had that feeling that, that I was letting go, that I probably mom- died for a moment. I was embarrassed. I took my jacket off and wrapped it around my waist to cover up the, what was happening down there. And I just walked out and said, not much happening tonight. I'm going to go home and review evidence, and I'll get back to you. And I left, and I didn't have any intentions on going back, and I was done. And I instructed the team member of mine how to properly bless and cleanse the apartment. And I even told him to advise them to possibly move, which they did, and they're doing much better now. He did cleanse and bless the apartment. I never went back, and I was out of the field, oh, my gosh, for, for probably a year. My mentor reached out to me many times. Other clergy members in the field reached out to me. Friends that have been paranormal investigators for many, many years reached out to me. Um, nobody could make me budge. I was done because I was just like, that's just not right. I don't know what happened to me, but uh, you know, I, I definitely don't want that to happen to me again, and I don't know how to prevent it. I don't know if next time it happens, if I will actually go to hell. I don't know, but I was done. 
But, you know, in how terrifying is this? This is an incredible story. It just I've had I've had something not as bad as that, but I've had another experience and it just racked me to my core. So I was yeah, going to um um, there was a, a time when I was um, I had I, I do all these what I refer to as mystery symbols. So a lot of these uh, symbols come to me uh, sometimes in the morning, sometimes at night, uh, sometimes in packets, sometimes just one at a time. And in this particular image, um, I was just kind of staring at it uh, one morning, and um, I was just kind of meditating on it and just really kind of thinking about it and spending some time with it. And all of a sudden, there's I, there's when certain things start to happen to me, I get this sense of this kind of, there's, I can't really describe it. It's like there's this glossy sense that starts to come over and my eyes get a little glossy and I kind of sense that something is changing or shifting. And all of a sudden I kind of entered in this little, little bit of a trance and I can see this like um, Tasmanian dust um, duster come at me, you know, it was just like a whirlwind coming at me and it yeah. just, swooped right up to me and all of a sudden it stopped and out of this dust thing is this eyeball that was 18 inches tall and it had a reptilian um, pupil to it and the entire eye itself was camouflaged and the whole socket of the eye was camouflaged and it it didn't say anything to me but it did say something into my mind and it says do you even understand what you are doing? Because you've just activated me to come here, and I'm letting you know if you persist with this, you will be attacked. Mm. And for days, I was just mortified that um, I just I didn't want to do any more kind of like quiet meditation, nothing. Just I just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I can I can appreciate what you did, and that, that was even more magnified than what happened to me. Yeah, you don't know what your if your next move is just going to be cause that situation to happen again, and if now you're being given the opportunity to to back walk off. the other way, yeah, you just don't just know. Back off. But in true in true Holy Spirit you. fashion, the man showed up plain as day on the next case, and uh, that got me back up on the horse. Had it not been that exact way, I still would, I would just be <laughs> working. I'd be at the animal hospital right now. I wouldn't be home talking with you. I'd still be at the animal hospital uh, working because I you wouldn't be like, doing this. You, know, uh, you mentioned earlier that some of this this energy, like the first, uh, your first encounter, uh, the energy followed you home and attacked your wife. Um, is that normal, or was that just like kind of a one-off? I don't know. I do know that uh, demons can pretty much do whatever they want to do. Thank uh-huh. you know, The rumor is they do play by some rules, thank God, because if, if you can figure out what the rules are, then you're one up on them, and, and you can kind of you know, battle them. But they can pretty much do whatever they want to do, especially if you are if 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 you're not David Collis or Sean Whittington, they can pretty much do whatever they want to do to you if you've given them reason to attach to you. If you've given them done something to give them the impression that they've been given permission to latch onto you and enter your life, you are in a world of hurt. 
And uh-huh. um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very very scary. That attack on her was, uh, I believe, it was because we used the Ouija board. And I have people. I have a lot of friends. I have lots of friends that are all different walks of life: witches, pagans. I don't judge anybody. I love psychics if they're if they're legitimately gifted. I'm okay with it all, but I'm telling you, <laughs> you gotta you gotta pick a side. You gotta even if it's just imagining that there's if if you believe that that darkness exists, then you have to believe that there's some higher vibrational power above us of love and light that's yes. the total opposite of that. And you have to choose a side. And even if you just pray to this, give whatever name you want to give to this higher power, give it whatever name you want to give it, but make friends with it and pray to it and try to be the very best version of yourself you can every day. Work on your humility. It's tough, even for me. Work on turning the other cheek. That's really tough for yeah. me. And just yeah, work on loving your human, your your fellow man. It's hard. My gosh, it's so hard. Work on that. Cut back on the drinking. Cut back on the drug abuse. Cut back on the masturbating. Cut back on the infidelity. It's just all of these things are opening doors. And the time is going to have to come. You have to choose a side because we know what side wins. And when the final, when it's when it's all over, when the end of days is finally over, it's end of days. You you're gonna wish you were on the right side. Do you feel like there's just like we're in a particular time that might be the end times? I mean, are you seeing kind of a darkness in the world at the moment that is shocking you? Absolutely. One, I, I do want to get uh-huh. this across to people. I'm not the kind of reverend that's going to get his preach on. You're not going to see me on the street corner on a box with a big sign on my chest that says, repent, the end is near. Um, I'm not going to be on a pulpit up on a stage in front of thousands of people, you know, uh, getting my preach on. That's not my style. But, uh, yeah, things are really, really bad right now, and I think – we are given an opportunity. This is a major, major, major wake-up call. We're at the crossroads. You have to choose a side, and you have to decide which road you're going to go down. And um, we're given a, we're being given an opportunity here to save ourselves. And I believe if we don't, then it is going to kick some things in motion. And once those things are kicked in motion, I don't. I believe believe they won't, we won't be able to turn back from it. And um, it could be end of times. Well, maybe you can explain that a little bit clear, uh, a little bit more, uh, maybe with a little more detail. What do you think? I think just find something in your life. Now, even the atheist, I don't know what to say to an atheist. Um, I know some atheists that are some of the nicest people on the face of the earth. I know some atheists that are not so nice. If you're one of the if you're an atheist, but you're just a darn good person, you're going to be saved. The people that there's people out there right now listening to me, and you know who you are. This is the time, brothers and sisters, to make a choice and 
you already heard me say it. You need to make yourself worthy right now of whatever side it is that you're going to choose. If it's the dark side, I'm going to miss you. If it's the right side, then be worthy of that side. I promise you, trust me, I promise you, if you try to be the best version of yourself every day, however you were today, if you try to be a better version of yourself tomorrow, and so on and so on, and all the things in your life that you're doing that you may think you like, but deep down inside you're not so happy with, deep, deep, deep down inside when you pull all the layers away, you're not that happy being a drunk. You're not that happy being a drug addict. You feel like shit after you masturbate. You feel like shit when you have an affair on your wife or you have an affair on your husband. You feel like shit when you go out and get in fights with perfect strangers or have road rage. You know the difference between right and wrong. You need now to make a choice to start being the best version of yourself that you can be and start being the kind of person that can love and be loved and the rest will fall in place. If you want to add religion to your life, great. If you don't, that's okay too. But it starts with baby steps. It starts with you. Take a long look in the mirror after the show's over with and have a talk with yourself. And if you just want to pray to, you know, whatever name you want to add to a higher vibrational power of love and light, or seek out a spiritual advisor. If you don't like what the spiritual advisor is saying to you, Stop seeing him or her. Stop playing with the Ouija boards. Stop going to seances. Stop provoking ghosts on ghost hunts. Paranormal investigate if you want, but don't provoke ghosts because you don't know who you're, you don't know, you know, you're poking the bear with the stick and it's not going to end well for you. Just be an experiencer. Document what you experience, but don't conjure, don't provoke. Don't dabble in witchcraft. I know a lot of witches. I'm going to get some hate mail. Don't dabble in witchcraft. Most of the witches I know, um, that's just a term, but they're good people. They, they love the earth. They love nature. That's what their religious belief system is about. They're not the ones that are around the cauldrons and flying around on brooms. But you got, it's a choice you got to make. And right now we're being given a wake-up call. Look. When, we're, when the show's over, turn on the news. Do you like seeing what you're seeing? Doesn't it just make you sick to your stomach when you see old people getting beat up by young people on the street just because they were walking down that street? Um, the violence. Um, oh, my gosh, the killings and the violence yeah. and the rioting. And I understand that. I'm telling you, I just, you know, we're being given a chance here to wake up as, as a human race and make you know make things better work on making things better but it's never ever good to do it from never nothing good comes from violence and hatred nothing ever comes good from violence and hatred and and if i if if you take my advice and 2 months from now you're like you know i hate i wish you know i everything you told me on nightlight rev <laughs> two months ago was wrong. I'm miserable now. I've tried to be the very best person I could be. I'm miserable. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's not going to happen. I promise you, if you really make a concerted effort to do the right thing and be a good person, 
it'll snowball into bigger and better things and you'll be much happier. And when you see something wrong, help somebody. Don't drive by um, a middle-aged person that's being, you know, beaten by three or four thugs. Pull over, call 911, get out and start yelling and screaming for them to stop doing it. They start running at you, get back in your car, close the door, drive off. You know, if you see something wrong, stand up for it. Most of these people are under some type of influence or they are just bad people and there's, they're, they're going through some of their own oppression and they've got their own attachments, trust me. And they're all cowards. Deep down inside, they're all cowards. And you're only going to get bum-rushed and beat up on by a dozen of them at a time. One or two of them, no. You know, go buy some mace to protect yourself. You know, I don't believe in, you know, going out and shooting people because now you're just doing the same thing as them. But, you know, you got to find a way to stand up to these these uh, bad people, these wrongdoers. And you notice on yeah. the news when you see people stand up to them, you know, usually nothing happens um, unless there's just overwhelming numbers against the person trying to stand up for themselves. It usually doesn't end well for them, but it's just not good right now. Think just for a moment, think of how easily this could escalate into far worse than it is so easily. And it's going to, I believe with them defunding the police in Minneapolis and the way they're cutting way back on funding the police in New York. Oh my gosh. Guarantee you, um, wherever you live, David, you have a lot of people that used to live in, in a, Minnesota coming to live there, and I'm going to have a lot of people that used to live in New York coming to Vegas. I guarantee you, no one's going to want to go I there and nervous. visit and live there. Hey, we're going to we're starting to wind down the show, so we got like ten minutes left. So I want to ask a couple of quick questions, you know, a little bit uh, fast succession here. But you know, when you read the New Testament, I know what happened. You know, when I was writing my book, interviewing Jesus the Man. There were a number of things that would just like pop off a page, and I go, I understand what you're talking about. When you read any of Jesus's miracles or you know his casting out of, of demons, and particularly the one named uh, Legion, do you go, I understand exactly what he says? You know, here's one where um, Jesus confronts this demon-possessed man, and the man says, "Don't torture me." And Jesus asks, "What's your name?" And he says, "Legion." And he, the, the man, well, the, the, the demons beg Jesus not to be thrown into the abyss. I mean, what do you think is going on there? Do you have, like, any insights into that? You know, because you, well, it sounds like you went through one with your own experience with that, the, that tornado-like experience, with the black tornado that picked you up. I also believe I experienced something similar to that during an exorcism where, I just talked to the demon. I've sensed that there were angelic light beings present. I could see them in the room. I could see them on the staircase leading into the living room. And they weren't ghosts. Mm -hmm. They were definitely of an angelic realm. And I just thought outside the box and thought, you know, you know it, it couldn't hurt. I mean, I've got the gangs all here now. I feel totally protective, protected. I'm going to do something way out of the box here and tell this demon that, uh, you know, this is your chance. You know, you're going to go be sent somewhere that you're not going to like for eternity or you can try and beg God for forgiveness. Now, which they say, 
demons are incapable of doing that. Maybe this wasn't a a higher-ranking demon, or maybe it had been so weak and this was near the end of the exorcism that I was able to pull this off. But that was a turning point in that exorcism, and I believe that this demon gave in to these angelic beings and was escorted out of there and possibly not cast into the abyss, but maybe taken somewhere else to be given the opportunity to um, change, let's say, for lack of a better description. I don't know, but my feeling was at that time that that's what's happened to that particular demon, that it wasn't just casted out and thrown in the abyss at that time. And that, that exorcism is being talked about a lot by a lot of my colleagues as to if, if that's the case, then we have to re if that did occur, then we have there's a lot of things we have to rethink about when it comes to our approach to uh deliverance and demonology and exorcism and stuff. Uh what yeah. I think was happening so there was two it. things could be happening. You know, they're always they're liars. They're just like the one they serve, the master liar, the liar of liars. Um Jesus was God in the living form at that moment. And the demon might have been trying to prey on that, just like the devil tried to tempt Christ all those times in the desert. The demon might have just been seeing what Christ's reaction would be at that moment, saying that to him. And it could have been totally from a deceptive, trying to be deceiving angle. Or it could have been truly in fear of being uh, tossed into the abyss, knowing that Jesus had that power. And maybe like what I experienced in that one exorcism, maybe it was ready to be given a chance. Uh, maybe demons, you know, if, if if they are able to bring themselves to beg for forgiveness and confess their sins, maybe they too can be saved. But But many, maybe not, because they've already done such evil, atrocious things, not only on the angelic realm, but here in in the world and amongst uh-huh. living human beings, that there's no hope for them. But maybe with all of them, there's there's some that can be uh, reached, so to speak. I don't know. It's um, another one of those we're going to find out one day. So we have uh, we probably have five minutes left, and do you uh, well, do you have a book coming out? Of it did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so we, you know what? I, I haven't started to write another one. The first one was yeah. really, I had to dig deep and pull a lot of scabs off a lot of old wounds to write a lot of that. And it was a lot harder than I thought. And I'm just trying to push that book. I just, just celebrated its one-year anniversary being out on the, out on the market. And a lot of the, every book that's sold, proceeds go to stjude.org and St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So I push the book a lot because that's an important cause for me. But um, I, I, you know, I may start writing again as of, as of this moment. No real plans, but um, let's just say uh, never say never. 
I get it because uh, I'm kind of right there with you. So, and as we speak, my wife's getting ready to order your book. I heard wonderful things about your book, and my wife's going to get it um, because, I mean, how can I not buy a book that says interviewing Jesus? How can I not buy it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I'm telling you, there's a lot of things in there that I, I figured out, which I think is really exciting. Um, and that's for another discussion. So anyway, why don't you give us a little bit, uh, real quick, uh, you only got a couple of like, you know, 60 seconds or so. World okay. Society of Exorcists, what is that? I founded that. You can say 12-week online college-level course that I teach, and you can enroll in the course at www.ghost-b, as in boy-gone, G-O-N-E, dot biz. That's my website. You can enroll in the course there. Uh, all my students get a stunning diploma suited for framing and some special parting gifts for, that they can only get from yours truly. And so everybody out there, keep all my past and current and future students in your prayers. So that's a course that they can take, Introduction to Spiritual Warfare. Uh, my book's for sale on that same page. There's a page on the website called Ireland Tour 2021. I'm taking 24 special people to Ireland in May of next year, which is going to be a beautiful spiritual uh, trip to Ireland. Uh, that is just going to, you can see the complete itinerary of the trip on that page. It'll blow you away. And um, that's about it. God, Ghosts, and the Paranormal Ministry, my book. You can get autographed copies from me enclosed in a house blessing kit. There's rumors that there's an entity attached to that book, that there's a picture of inside the book that some of the readers that have gotten it from me personally have claimed to see that entity in their home. But if you buy it from Amazon, I haven't had anybody that got it from Amazon make that claim yet. And it's a little less expensive on Amazon, but through me it comes autographed with a house blessing kit. So you've got the course. Uh, Vegas Supernatural, Monday nights on KCOR, and I have Reverend Sean Whittington's Paranormal Ministry live stream video cast on Sunday afternoons on Reverend Sean Whittington's Paranormal Ministry Facebook book live page. Do you like that? Facebook live page yeah. on Sunday afternoons. And uh, <laughs> I'm Dr. Doolittle by day and working a ton of paranormal cases, and I'm in constant prayer for you, David, and all your listeners in the whole world and anybody else who will listen, and I hope that we all come through all this. How's your, real quick, how's your family doing during the pandemic? You know what? My mom and dad are doing well. Uh, both my brothers seem to be, you know, pulling through, and my wife and I are, uh, we're okay. So, Good. you know, there's a lot of blessings that we are experiencing, and part of it is how to live with each other in a kind of loving way. So, well, listen, that's going to, I got 30 seconds left. I've been told that I got to wrap this up. So Sean, thanks so much for coming into the, or coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. And I also want to thank all my listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really appreciate your involvement. Please click the uh, follow and subscribe buttons. And I'm also, you can find me on, I have a new Facebook page. It's a fan page. It's Nightlight with David Collis. So without further ado, let's journey together. Good night and have a great tomorrow.